And good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation. It is a pleasure to be with you this evening, as it always is. And just like last week, I am live from Studio T here on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in the former athletic gear closet. And um, I am doing fine. I hope the connection holds this week. (laughs) Just a word about last week's show. If you tuned in, you heard that uh, you heard some glitches and pops and all kinds of um, interesting audio effects that were unintended from uh, the spurious connection that I had. It had to do with some settings on my computer. Those have been resolved as far as I can tell, and so I believe that we are not going to have any further issues this evening. If you if you heard the glitchy show last week and you would like to hear the corrected version, just go to the archives at WFMU.org, uh, and you can find the Tectonic archives. You can also go to tectonic.fm, that's T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and you can find last week's show, the, what was that, the Monday, April 18, uh, 2022 show, and you can listen to the corrected audio. I went I went in afterwards and I re-recorded and I explained it in the audio itself, so there, there's no surprises. So uh, that is, um, that has been, that has been addressed and dealt with, and um, I... I uh, want to remind you that the reason that I and, and a lot of other hosts and DJs are uh, broadcasting from home is because the station is just finishing up a second uh, COVID lockdown, which sh- should be, uh, I hope, will be lifted. It looks like it will be lifted by uh, next week's show. So hopefully next week I will be back in Studio A and uh, we will no longer be subject to whatever settings my home computer (laughs) has it. But I think we've got this. And I'm really happy that we've got the settings resolved. I want to say thanks so much to Ruth, uh, Ruth in the booth, for helping me reset these settings. I think we've got it. And thanks to Alan, who is in Studio A, who's watching the board and uh, helping out this evening, just as he did last week. And uh, so we have all the pieces in place. And I am really happy to bring you an interview that I have been wanting to uh, record for for months now and uh, and finally was able to record it several days ago and we're going to air it this evening. The interview is with Paul Salopek. Paul Salopek is a writer and a National Geographic explorer and he's doing something amazing. He is walking around the world. He is on a multi-year walk that is, when it's done, is going to be 24,000 miles, which I think is, uh, I think is around 38,000 kilometers. He started in, uh, in Ethiopia, started in, uh, in Africa, and is walking across Asia. He's in China right now, and his plan is to go up into Siberia, across the Bering Strait. He'll do that on on ship. Obviously, he's not doing that on foot. And then he's going to walk down the west coast of uh, Canada, the U.S., into Central America, all the way down to the, the southern tip of South America. And it's, as you'll hear in the interview, the idea is he's uh, he's retracing the steps of human migration. I mean, as he'll say, it's not one path of human migration. But the, uh, the idea is that he is looking at um, a bunch of different cultures, <clears throat> excuse me, along the way in many different countries. And this, it's called the Out of Eden Walk. He is, in a way, retracing our steps out of, uh, out of Eden, I guess you could say, and into the wider world. And if you go onto the National, Ge- National Geographic website, there's a there's a subsite for the Out of Eden Walk that has a lot of great um, photos and uh, writings from Paul and uh, and walking partners he's had with him, 
and you can if you go to the playlist for this evening's show you can find a link to that as well as um, a map that i've posted on the playlist that, that comes from the out of eden walk site that shows paul's route and uh if you go to that out of eden walk website you can read the description that answers the first question everybody has <laughs> wait 24,000 miles why why would someone do this and what the uh, what the site says is that Paul is covering the major stories of our time from climate change to technological innovation, mass migration, cultural survival, by giving voice to the people who inhabit those stories every day. And so he is creating a global record of human life at the start of a new millennium, as told by villagers, nomads, traders, farmers, soldiers, and artists. And in this way, the site says, if we choose to slow down and observe carefully, we also can rediscover our world. And I think that's a, a nice uh, overview of the walk uh, and some of the some of the goals that that Paul has as as he's been on this walk. Now, how long has Paul been on this walk? <laughs> well, let me put it this way. He started in January of 2013. That means that Paul Salopek has been walking for over nine years. And yes, I think there was there was some hiatus in there for uh, for COVID, but he's he's back on the walk as of this year. And he is in China right now, as you'll hear. And um, the reason there's a couple of reasons why I wanted to to feature him uh, on the show. One is that he uh, Paul Salopek was. He wasn't directly on the show, but he was mentioned on a previous show, my interview with Steve Elkins, and I need to put this link on the uh, on the playlist. But a while back, I interviewed Steve Elkins um, about his f fabulous documentary film, Echoes of the Invisible, which I'd still recommend. And that uh, documentary featured four main characters uh, who were on long journeys, one of whom is Paul Salopek. And... Uh, so I thought, what a, it's such an intriguing story. Let's bring him on to the show. The other reason is um, I think Paul Salopek has something really important to tell us from his experiences about the nature of true connectivity in our increasingly technological world. Now, we hear all the time that, oh, we're, we've got global connectivity or maybe 5G connectivity. This, this word connectivity is bandied about uh, quite a bit. And yet, and yet, when I walk on the sidewalks of Manhattan, as I do every day, and through the parks, and as I do every day, I pass people who are toddling along, burying their face in their phone. I think to myself, these people are not connected. They are not connected to the streetscape. They're not connected to me or anyone around them. They are not connected to life with their faces buried in their phones. And yet the phone is reporting, you have excellent connectivity. And so there's an irony here that the, the true connectivity, and I think you'll hear this in Paul's interview, the true connectivity comes not from our technological devices that, that promise that word, but rather from putting on our shoes and going for a walk and observing carefully, as the site said, and listening and listening and truly connecting to one another. And I think it's such an important message for us uh, to keep in mind. And um, I learned a lot and was inspired by this conversation with Paul Salopek. Why don't we listen to it now? And, uh, and then if we have time, I will say something about some of the tech news <laughs> that broke today. But uh, first, let's listen to my interview with Paul Salopek, National Geographic explorer and writer who's on the Out of Eden Walk here on WFMU Tectonic. Paul Salopek, welcome to Tectonic. Pleased to be with you, Mark. It's an honor to have you on the show, Paul. I've been following your progress for some time now. You are on an epic journey, a 24,000 mile walk around the world which you started in January of 2013. And we'll get to that journey in a minute. But first, can you just tell us where are you speaking to me from right now? 
I'm talking to you from China, and uh, I've been uh, inching my way across China from south to north over the last, oh, about six months. Speaking of going from south to north, let's talk about your route for the whole trip. The, the walk is called the Out of Eden Walk. You're a writer and a National Geographic explorer. Again, you started this Out of Eden Walk in January of 2013, and it's fascinating. This this walk is retracing the path of human migration out of Africa, which is where you started in 2013. And after that, you walked across the Middle East and then into Central Asia, then into Pakistan and India, and now, as you said, into China. Where is the route going to take you from here? Yeah, in terms of space, um, the route will go continue on from China northward into Siberia, and then I'll cross over um, by ship from Siberia to Alaska, and then walk down more or less the western seaboard of the New World down to the tip of South America to Tierra del Fuego. And geographically speaking, the logic is this, is that if, if you want to try to recreate um, the first human diaspora out of Africa, out of the mother continent that we all come from, um, that's more or less the arc of a journey. And w with the caveat, and I constantly remind my readers, is that it didn't really happen that way, right? Um, back in the Stone Age, back in the Pleistocene, when humans started walking out of Africa, after having been in Africa for, you know, upwards of close to 200,000 years, um, it wasn't a kind of a linear progression. And that's why when we say we're following the pathway of human, you know, dispersal, it's actually one of many, many pathways. Back in the day, um, when we were walking the planet and discovering it on foot, one footstep at a time, we moved radially. We, we followed animals. We, you know, moved according to seasons, uh, according to topography, mountains, and around obstacles like deserts and, and big bodies of water. We moved sideways. We even went back. There's evidence that people moved backward into Africa when they encountered hostile conditions. So this is kind of a, an imaginative journey. So through space, but also through time, and most importantly, um, through storytelling. It's a storytelling project. Let me ask you about the walking, uh, because you've made a remarkable commitment to walking these 24,000 miles. As you say, there are cases where you have to take a, a ship. I mean, obviously, you can't walk across bodies of water, but you are not driving. You're not on a bicycle. What made you commit to to doing this, this in, entire arduous route on foot? Well, I figured that if, if I wanted to get back into a dawn mindset, a Pleistocene frame of mind, if you will, there's only one way to do it. And that's by using my body as the main instrument, not just of locomotion, but of, of making contact with the planet we call home. And the thesis, you know, in a nutshell is this, is that we've all been moving so quickly, myself included, um, in a lifestyle that's increasingly fast. Industrial civilization, post-industrial civilization, the modern world we live in, now moves at the speed of thought um, through digital technologies. And I think I wondered, as I, as a contributor to this phenomenon, because I've worked as a journalist um, for many years, I, I've created enormous amounts of content of data. I'm wondering if we aren't experiencing a sense of overload, a sense of burnout. So the idea of slowing down has less to do really with kind of the athletic or physical feat of walking long distances. That's what I do. I've been, as you noted, walking for years now, thousands of kilometers, and more to do with, with the mind and the imagination, knowing how closely connected the mind and the imagination are to the body. So I thought, why not get off this treadmill that's, that's, that's just going faster and faster, and then try to revert to a lifestyle that moves at the pace that our bodies have evolved, not just to move through the physical world, but to absorb information, which is about five kilometers or three miles an hour. That's the reasoning for doing this on foot, not by bicycle, not by, you know, I don't even push a cart, right? Um, I just carry a rucksack. 
I love that thought about absorbing information at three miles an hour. <laughs> um, back in December, I had a documentary filmmaker named Steve Elkins on the show. He was talking about his, his documentary called Echoes of the Invisible, in which you figured prominently, Paul. And as I watched that documentary, I wrote in my notes that exact quote, Paul Salopek, we absorb information at the pace of walking three miles an hour. And I thought, what a profound statement. Um, obviously, there's a there's a physical aspect, as you as you say, the the physical act of taking things slowly and walking at the pace that humans used to live their life at. But I was fascinated to see you turn it into a bit of wisdom about our engagement with information, because as you say, in our technological society, so much of our concern. Uh, whether professionally or personally in society, is about absorbing information. How do we present information? You know, what sites or apps are we supposed to use to get information? And you're reminding us that human beings absorb information at the pace of walking. And I wonder if you could tell us from your own experience, what is that like? What are some examples or maybe what does it feel like how would you describe the experience, having been in this mode now for years, how would you describe that to listeners who, uh, as you say, may be experiencing the information overload of, of the society we live in? I think that the walk has given me several gifts, and some of them I sort of expected. Some have been a surprise. One of the Great discoveries of the walk. I'm, I, I, a lot of young people follow the walk. We have an educational program that reaches out to tens of thousands of school kids in classrooms in 60 countries or more. And I, I get the question, isn't it, isn't it hard? Isn't it difficult? And the answer is yes and no. Of course, you know, you get tired, you get sweaty, um, you know, you get sore muscles, um, you get hungry, you get exposed to the weather. But taken as a whole, it's one of the gifts of the walk is how surprisingly easy it is to move extremely long distances. If you're reasonably healthy, you don't have to be a super athlete. Um, this is not a, an extreme sport reality show. I'm not out here eating bugs and rubbing sticks together to make fires. The point of my reply is it's extraordinarily easy on a very important level because it's so natural. It feels very comfortable. It feels very much familiar to be taking in landscapes and to be making acquaintances and to be building meaningful relationships at the pace of one's own footsteps. It just feels good. Walking feels good. And I think we all can agree on that point. It's why we, if we're stressed, if we're having trouble in our lives, often we go take a walk either alone or, or with somebody who we trust to talk as we walk. I think there are pretty uh, organic reasons why we feel so good about this. You know, the, walking is the way we've been exploring the larger world, and I would venture to say ourselves, for 300,000 years, as long as Homo sapiens have been around. And it's only been in the last heartbeat of our lifetime as a species that we've been moving much more quickly. And now we're moving in a, in a way that our Stone Age brains, which have not caught up with the velocity of our, of our post-industrial lifestyles by any stretch of the imagination, are struggling to keep up with. We move, as I mentioned, at the speed of electrons, right? Moving through vacuums um, with digital, you know, the larger parts of our life we spent digitally, you know, looking into screens. Would I remind people over and over, and I have for nine years, is where, whereas when I tell somebody, whether it's a Chinese farmer in Yunnan who's you know digging up ginger from her garden or talking to you, you know, from across the world using this digital technology that I'm talking about, what I remind people over and over is that the reason it feels so good is because it's normal. It's what we have actually evolved, our brains and nervous system has evolved to do is to take in stimuli, to take in information, to take in sensation at this human pace of a walk. 
that's what we're wired. We're, we're literally hardwired to do. So when we do it, it becomes a source of pleasure and often a, a source of refuge, you know, emotional or psychic refuge. It's no surprise that, you know, religious orders make walks called pilgrimages, right? It's no surprise that meditation involves walking. So I think it's just, it's not um, as strange and as, as abnormal as it seems to walk 24,000 miles or whatever that is, uh, you know, 30 plus thousand kilometers. It's sort of what we, we've been doing all the time. And what you and I are doing now, which is sitting down, you know, talking to each other through the medium of a piece of silicone and steel and glass is actually pretty abnormal. That is extreme. You know, sitting down is the extreme sport, not walking across the world. That's something else that I wrote down from Echoes of the Invisible, quote where you said, it's, it's sitting that is insane, <laughs> not the walking. And that yeah. seems borne out by various studies about the, the physiological effects of, of sitting down for, for several hours a day. I wanted to talk about a, another one of the gifts that you just mentioned of, of the walk from what you said in Echoes of the Invisible and your writings on National Geographic, I understand that this walk has opened up new opportunities for you to meet and get to know strangers on the road. I'm bringing this up, of course, I mean, of course, someone on a journey is going to meet strangers, but I, I'm specifically interested in what is a gift of walking that changes the kind of relationship or the kind of encounter that you have with strangers um, that you wouldn't have if you were going faster than three miles an hour? That's a good question, and it is, it is a defining difference. I mean, just think about it. If you and I were to fly into Kunming, the capital of the province of Yunnan in southern China, on a domestic commercial flight, and then to rent a car at the airport, and then drive out into the countryside of Yunnan and, and stop at villages in a, just say a white rent a car. Think about the kind of impression that leaves and the stereotypes that come with it and the assumptions and the expectations that come with it versus you and I walking across Yunnan on foot through those very same villages and meeting indeed the very same people. It's a radically different experience. And it's sometimes hard to explain. I can tell you, you know, what I think are some of the differences, but I think it's, it's complicated. But one is the most obvious and, and banal is that, you know, walking up with a rucksack chapped by the sun, you know, sets you apart is, is not, a, not the usual visitor, not the us usual transient coming through any community, any settled community. So it evokes immediately a sense of curiosity that may not you know, be necessarily evoked if you arrived, you know, in a motorized way, in the usual way of the 21st century. So automatically, it sets you apart as something other than your typical vagabond, right, um, or tourist. And I think what it does is it opens up the possibility of more immediate, and ultimately, if you choose, so more meaningful interactions. Because let's say you and I approach um, a woman who's picking pears outside of her house and we're arriving on foot, there is a natural line of questioning that evolves from that first encounter. You know, who are you? Where do you come from? Where are you going? Of course, something you might ask anybody arriving even in a taxi. But you can imagine the answers lead to a conversation that's much more lively and interesting and more naturally leading to the destination of mutual wonder. Also, there's an element of being um, somewhat, uh, as well as being unusual, of being often less threatening. When people see you approaching on foot, they have time to, to absorb and process your presence in their landscape, in their tableau, as opposed to you showing up on a motorbike instantaneously, almost like on a magic carpet. And they have to adapt to your sudden presence, which might be startling and, and, and whatnot. And therefore, the interaction might be more wooden and more formal. If somebody walks, watches you and me coming in for several minutes, you know, down a dusty lane, they have time to look at us, 
They have time to kind of uh, make conjectures about who we are. They see what we look like. And they're fully prepared by the time we arrive within hailing distance for our presence in their intimate space. And I think that is something that I have come to call the ceremony of arrival. There's something ceremonial about it because we have given each other the time to adapt ourselves to each other's presence because I'm looking at the person up down the road as well and trying to judge, you know, are, is, is she working? Is she busy? Um, might she be amenable to exchange a few words? And that kind of cognitive biofeedback loop has time to kind of get a little bit deeper and richer by the time we're ready to talk to each other. And so it leads often to more interesting and, and more meaningful conversations and interactions, even passingly. So I think walking, because it's slower, because it's, in, and I'll even go out on a limb and say, because it evokes kind of a distant collective memory in the person who is receiving you, it leads to potentially greater depth in the way that, that you interact with people along your trail as opposed to driving, where you're kind of appearing like a genie and disappearing, right? And it tends, in my experience, to unlock empathy and ignite curiosity. And again, I come back to this word wonder, a sense of wonder, because generally um, people go through several stages when they meet a, a long-distance walking person, like a walker. Um, if they choose to interact with you, they, they first, they, they ask, you know, where are you from? And you say, I'm from, you know, X place. And, you know, you've been, I've been walking for thousands of kilometers. The first reaction is, is disbelief and almost mirth, right? They, there's laughter. They think I'm crazy. And that segues into curiosity where there's a back and forth. Then something else starts building. I can see it behind their eyes. And it's often by the time we leave, shake hands or say goodbye after having exchanged a few words or a cup of water from a well or what have you, there's almost a sense of yearning or longing in their eyes when they're saying goodbye. Because I think the idea of a long foot journey is inside of most of us. Call it limbic memory. Call it this memory of the body, of the way we used to be. And people will often say this to me across cultures and languages. Sedentary people will say, you know, I wish I could take the time to do what you're doing. Um, so I think all of these factors have contributed to what is without question the most significant journey of my life in a life of journeys. And we're back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I am your host, and we are halfway through my interview with Paul Salopek, writer and National Geographic explorer, who is on a 24,000 mile or 38,000 kilometer walk called the Out of Eden Walk. He is over nine years into this walk, and he is in China right now. We're having a good conversation about this and some good book recommendations from DJ Arb and others on the comment board. Go to WFMU.org and click playlists and comments and you can join in. Let's listen to the second half of my interview now with Paul Salopek here on WFMU Tectonic. It's interesting to me that as you list the various aspects of arriving uh, on foot to a village, the ceremony of arrival, giving people time to size you up and get ready um, mm -hmm. for you to build your own conjecture or, or, or context around the village you're entering from your perspective. All of these things are oppositional to the mindset of motorized transport, which is simply about efficiency. Let's get from point A to point B as quickly as possible at the lowest cost. No context, no ceremony, no resonance with deep past of, of the species, just from point A to point B. You 
were speaking just then about the difference in the traveler's experience if they arrive in a village by a motorbike or some other uh, motorized transport. But you have said something that I found very interesting about the experience, not of being in a car or on a motorbike going into a village, but rather being a walker in a society that has given itself over to motorized transport. And what you said was, and I don't know if this is the exact wording, but it was something like, all motorized societies consider walkers to be suspicious. And I wonder if you can say more about that. Did you have experiences on the walk so far? Or how would you describe that insight that societies that have transformed into car-dependent have a different relationship with the rare individual who decides to walk? You know, it, it's, it, it happened quite early in, in the walk um, because I started the walk and the deserts of northeastern Ethiopia where an awful lot of people still walk as the main form of locomotion. And then I crossed the Bab el Mandeb straight to the Arabian Peninsula and then began walking through Saudi Arabia, starting in a really big city called Jidda, which of course is motorized. And I, I noticed there was a very stark difference between these two landscapes, both of them inhabited. One where people got around largely on foot because of economic disadvantage um, and also because of a pastoral lifestyle, right? They were mainly Afar camel herders in Ethiopia who I was walking with. And then in, in on the coast of the Red Sea in Saudi Arabia, at least at the start, before I got into the desert, it was a, you know, a very urban landscape that took me three days to walk out of Jeddah. And so what I noticed is that in, in landscapes um, where people walk, it's easier for me to walk. And there's no surprise there because I fit in. I'm a, I'm a walker among many walkers. And when I need directions, for example, Almost everybody I ask, including very small children, six-year-old girls and boys, will be able to convey very accurate directions because but even by that young age, if they've been walking their whole life, they have already developed a pretty sophisticated relationship between their bodies and, and, and the physical landscape around them. I would say they were like uh, spatially endowed. But then when you step into a more affluent societies that have the resources to transform their living space for the benefit, not of human beings, but of cars, that relationship changes dramatically with landscape. And with the increase of speed, there's an inverse ratio of a decrease in, I guess, spatial literacy, I would call it. People that you ask for directions don't have a clue about what real distance is anymore because they don't have to walk it anymore. The main muscle that they use in their body when they're crossing enormous distances are the muscles in their ankle, on their right ankle, which operates the gasoline you know, pedal um, on their car. And they have no appreciation for time anymore because speed, motorized travel doesn't just annihilate space, it annihilates time. And so, when you become a walker in a landscape that has given itself over to the automobile, you become an agent of subversion, if you will. You're kind of a virus in a body that's mechanized, and you become even an irritant. Uh, you know, if you try walking along a major superhighway, it's not only dangerous for for you, the walker, to be moving as such. You know around one ton chunks of metal and glass that are hurtling along at 100 plus kilometers an hour. But you're a headache for the drivers too. They have to go around you. And so you're, you're an object of pity, an object of curiosity in a kind of a, a wary way. And you're often an object of, of some suspicion. Um, you know, you're either in trouble if you're walking on foot in an automotive, automotive landscape or you're up to no good, um, you might be skulking around. And so you often attract the attention of security forces. And one way that I've been measuring this across the world, and it started almost as a lark, and then it's turned into one of the 
metrics of the walk, one of the systematic ways that I'm measuring pacing off the world on foot is to see how many times I get detained by the police. Um, so we've created this police map across the world that is kind of a bit of a tongue-in-cheek um, exercise, but also, you know, is is meant if there's any serious intent, it's kind of like a anecdotal indicator of freedom of movement on foot across the world. And in places like Ethiopia, where everybody's walking, I'm I'm to some degree more invisible, and and you know, nobody security uniformed officers never even bothered to stop me if I'm walking through kind of relentlessly motorized societies, I get stopped more frequently because police are saying, you know, first, you know, some police are stopping and say, do you need help? Did your car break down? <laughs> or <laughs> on the other hand, you know, show me your documents. Who are you? What are you doing out here on foot? I think the record for being stopped on the trip in terms of nation states so far was Uzbekistan. I was stopped dozens of times in Uzbekistan. But that's where kind of my, my model breaks down a little bit because Uzbekistan, when I was walking through, it was a pretty repressive police state. Um, and so it was more kind of just suspicion of an outsider who was on display. One of the other revelations of walking for so long or a long period of time through distances like the ones that I'm walking is just, just how much we have transformed the surface of the earth to the benefit of, of wheeled motorized vehicles and not our own bodies. It's all out of whack and out of scale. And that's why walking along highways, which might be the shortest way between point A and point B, it's certainly the most efficient, is the least pleasant. They're miserable um, environments to walk through. Uh, the surfaces are hard on your feet. They jolt your joints. They're hot. They reflect the sun. They're furnaces. They're noisy. They're dangerous. Because they're built from machines, they're not built for human beings. They're not built for living things, generally. They kill an awful lot of animals to boot. Hearing you describe your experience walking through a car culture versus walking through a more human-centered traditional culture and environment, it raises a question for me that comes up all the time on this show, which is, how do we live in a technological society? <laughs> um, because, Paul, what you're saying about the inhuman machine-scale society that we're building for cars, I'm sure we could have another conversation if we had more time to talk about the parallels with the intrusion of smartphones and digital surveillance technologies that are now beginning to cover societies all over the globe, including here in the United States. And I would say very similar things about the extinguishing of healthy human relationships and, and on and on. I, I won't get into it right now, but you have a unique perspective, having walked thousands of miles and gone through how many different countries and biomes and villages and talked to who knows how many thousands of people now in the past nine plus years. Help me, Paul, help me understand how do we live in a technological society, given that we cannot all go on a 24,000-mile walk, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, we learn. And I'm, I try to be compassionate on this question. I try to, you know, my, my time horizon is, is what, 70,000 years? That's more or less when scientists say, Anatomically, modern Homo sapiens began moving in, in larger numbers out of Africa for the walk that would become the defining walk of our species, kind of our walk into becoming who we are today. Back then, we were problem solvers. That was our advantage. That's how we able that we were able to survive in so many different environments, from Arctic to you know tropical rainforests. I think we have to rely on that innovation that's stitched into our genes to overcome the challenges that you're mentioning now. And I, I remind myself the distance between the pastoral economies that, you know, that I encountered in some remoter corners of the world. I'm talking about people who might still walk or use draft animals, for example. The tiny little fraction of humanity that still does that was widespread in the time of my great-grandparents four generations ago. My great-grandparents still use draft animals on farms. And so 
we have had vanishingly little time to adapt to the extraordinary pace of change. And it's no surprise that we're disorientated. It's no surprise that we feel lost often. It's no surprise that it takes us a generation or more to understand that with the gift of technology comes certain costs that we, we may not be ready for psychologically. And I think we're still getting adjusted to the speed of our lives and it's, it's, it's going to take time. And I, I wouldn't be doing this walk, Mark, if I weren't hopeful that we will find ways to balance the intrusiveness and the disruption and the, the enormous sense of disempowerment often that comes with this enormously empowering technology, the paradox of that, right? I think there has to be a readjustment all the way from a planetary level to all the factors that contribute to the climate crisis that's going to be a major bottleneck for our species in the coming century down to how much we screen time we use for our kids. It's these micro decisions and macro decisions um, that are being thrust on us and that really can't be ignored anymore. You can try to ignore them. I think many of us do. I mean, even I can't, I can't be consciously, my mind can't be worrying these friction points that, that you're talking about all the time because it would be exhausting and depleting. So even I shelter my mind from them. But I think we, we're being confronted them, with them in a way that, that makes them inescapable. And so we have to learn more quickly. Um, we have to be more collaborative in our approaches. We have to, just like we exchange technology now, we sell technology um, to each other. We have to be equally zealous in exchanging solutions to the problems that technology uh, are creating for us. And so these problems transcend borders and boundaries. They transcend languages and mountain ranges and cultures. And, and the walk also taught me that big indisputable fact is that whether we like each other or not, we're holding hands walking into the 21st century. And we damn well better start talking with each other about um, solving some of these problems because they, they are global. I think we have to come together in some ways um, to try to address the acceleration of not just our technologies, but all these interlinked common shared problems that, that come with them. In some ways, you know, experiments are happening. I can cite to you many, many anecdotal examples of how conservationists in the remote icy Pamir Mountains, you know, 13,000 feet high and in the Western Himalaya are exchanging ideas about, you know, community conservation for the last remnants of their wildlife with people who've done experiments on other continents and exchanging lessons learned. I think there needs to be a lot more of that kind of thing. What's remarkable is that, and this is another maybe banal observation, but one that's driven home by moving so slowly and, and spending time with different communities, is how stubborn we are. And we sort of have to make our own mistakes over and over and over again. For societies like post-industrial nations that have basically sold off all their forest, all their hardwood 100 years ago and become rich by clear-cutting their forests to be lecturing younger industrial societies about forest conservation without taking into account, right, that there's, there's a bit of hypocrisy um, involved in that lecture is something that I've seen with the walk over and over again. I think the time for lectures is kind of past and it's time for kind of sharing, exchanging ideas and listening. And it is happening. It is happening often very much at the grassroots level, not coming from above. And that itself is heartening. Well, Paul, I wonder if we can end on a hopeful note, keeping in mind the challenges that you just listed that are, that are ahead of us and our opportunity to, to communicate and listen better. There's something about your walk that I've picked up on that is really heartening, and that is the state of hospitality around the world <laughs> that, that you've apparently <laughs> experienced. And... So maybe you could tell us, um, when you get past the police and you get past the superhighway and you get past all of the devastations and degradations of motorized uh, infrastructure and you finally enter a village at walking speed, 
What has been your experience throughout the, the countries and cultures and religions, this, this vast, diverse tapestry of places you've been? What has been your experience uh, as you've entered those villages? Radical empathy. The thing that I tell students is that if I had tried this walk 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, I probably would be dead. I would have been knocked over the head continents ago and, and stripped by some somebody who was whistling as they were stripping my body <laughs> and never have made it. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen today. You, it's, all you have to do is glance at you know news feeds online to tell you the horrors that are happening as we speak, the cruelty, how cruel we can be to each other. And as a, as a war correspondent, I've seen a lot of it firsthand. But the gift of walking again, and I think it, it can be shared with any venture away from home, that's why we travel, is to remind ourselves about compassion and, and, and whose family, is that the overwhelming reaction is always hospitable, even in inhospitable situations or contexts. Uh, I walk through the margins of refugee crises. I walk through war zones. I've walked through police states where if you listen and if you take the time that walking gifts you to have an empathetic interaction, even with the secret policeman who is arresting you, that person will also return empathy. And I think that is probably the sustaining gift of the walk that keeps me going. Because if it weren't that case, I would not only have never made it this far, but I would have very little inclination and incentive to keep going, right? And so despite all the terrible news that we're flooded with, what I remind my readers is that when you're walking through a village and there is a house on fire and the firemen are there trying to douse the flames, it's natural, it's normal for all eyes, including your own, to rotate to the burning flames. But just realize that the other 99 houses around are not on fire and people are eating breakfast or doing work or teaching their children at that very moment. And I think that's something that may get lost in the media ecosystem, the global media ecosystem that values speed and drama over reality. A walk across the world is a transect through humanity. It's a snapshot. I'll grant you that. It's not scientific. It's no more than a line through the sand. But I can tell you that the transect that I've seen gives me hope. It gives me hope. Well, it gives me hope as well. And I really appreciate you being on the show. Paul Salopek from the Out of Eden Walk. I wish you the best for the remainder of your walk. I'll be following you online. And I hope you stay safe. <laughs> We're all rooting for you. And thanks again for, for being on Tectonic today. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure. You have a good day. back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining nine or so minutes of the show. And then DJ Arb is going to come on and present us with another excellent episode of The Arbitrarium. So please stay tuned for that. We just heard my interview with Paul Salopek, National Geographic explorer and writer who is nine years into his Out of Eden Walk, a 24,000-mile journey on foot across the world. I really appreciate Paul sharing his experiences and observations and really his wisdom, especially in that part of the conversation where we're talking about how are we supposed to survive this technological society that seems to be built for machines and not humans or human community? And I thought Paul's suggestions were 
right on. And, and they were simple, weren't they? Just walk and observe and listen and learn and have empathy. I mean, these are all things that don't require any digital technology whatsoever. And from what it sounds like from Paul's experience, those, those little bits of wisdom seem to generate better outcomes than all of the so-called connectivity and upgraded systems and phones and networks and cloud servers and everything rolled up together seems to be for naught when we compare it to the basic wisdom of walking, observing, listening, and being empathetic to one another. And as I, as I said, and, and Paul said, he is, uh, he is empathetic on this point that not many people can take nine years and go on a 24,000 mile walk. But these, I think, are insights that at least I can only speak for myself. I can try I can try to live a little better in my life so that I am connecting better with people in opposition to what the technological society wants from me, which is to look at the screen more and think quantitatively and so on. Uh, we're going to get into the technological society um, more directly in subsequent shows, but I thought this evening it would be nice to have a, a very thoughtful conversation with Paul Salopek. Again, the, the links to the Out of Eden Walk um, to the National Geographic website are on the playlist. You can go to WFMU.org or go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and you can find the links. Uh, if you want to contact me, I'm at mark at WFMU.org. That's M-A-R-K at WFMU.org. And I want to finish, I was going to read a poem, but I'm, I'm out of time. So um, National Poetry Month is ending in a few days, but you know what? We're going to extend it into May because <laughs> I have a poem by Wendell Berry that's perfect to end the show on, but I don't have time for it. So maybe next week. But I want to end with a, a brief quote that I have on the playlist from one of Paul's walking partners, a gentleman named Yang Wendu, who lives in Yunnan province. And he wrote this, and you can find this on the Out of Eden Walk website. This is from January. Um, Yang Wendu writes, Looking back on the more than 200 miles I walked with Paul, I came to an unexpected realization. Walking, for its own sake, while healthy and admirable, is only a small part of the benefit of moving with our feet. A deeper reward is rediscovering the world around us shortening the distance between each other, deepening mutual understanding, and sharing each other's cultures. I just love that quote, especially the phrase, shortening the distance between each other. And so for all that the digital devices promise that they're going to shorten distances, really the best thing we can do, metaphorically of course, is throw our phones into the Hudson River put on our shoes, and go walk to visit a neighbor. Thanks to Paul Salopek for being on. I want to remind you that you have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. And we're going to go out this evening to... A song, it's a, a live performance of the bluegrass band, The Cleverleys, singing a song that goes out to Paul Salopek. Keep going, Paul. We're rooting for you. Have a great week, everybody. Offering.
Welcome to the Arbitrarium, capital of the country of Arbsurdistan. I am your president, Arb. Brooklyn is now under my command. I declare Brooklyn seceded from the Union. Its new name will be Necropolis. And from this day forth, you shall call me Queen Death. My followers and I have the only radiation-proof suits in this area. I'll give the orders, and you shall obey.
hideous creatures will return from the underground and the fact that I love you will die you don't have to sleep to see nightmares just hold me close then closer still and you'll feel the probabilities pulling us apart and you'll feel the Pulling us apart Pulling us apart
shows a fire that could still be raging at the power station. Good evening. You're tuned in to WFMU. This show is The Arbitrarium, and my name is Arb. I'm here every Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. We open the show today with an excerpt from the film in, uh, They Eat Scum. That was Lydia Lunch's voice. And that led us into a poem for a new 